Well, it seems to me that the last time that we were together, uh, we were actually looking at the second part of the two valleys that Christian went through after leaving the Palace Beautiful. He went down into the Valley of Humiliation, and there in that first valley, he did battle with Apollyon. First verbal battle, and then physical battle. It was a striking scene. Uh, It was a fearful scene. It was. And Christian was about to be done in by Apollyon, but God. And Christian was able to reach his sword once again and deliver a wound to Apollyon that set him to flight. Well, Christian was healed of his wounds divinely, got some relaxation, and then proceeded into the second valley, the valley of the shadow of death. And I think when we hear those words, if we are at all familiar with Scripture, uh, we cannot but think of the beloved Psalm 23. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. And, and Bunyan, when he wrote about this, said that when Christian passed through the valley of the shadow of death, it was a more hard experience than the experience with Apollyon, if you can imagine that. And Christian, who entered into that valley of the shadow of death with his sword drawn, which, by God's decree, had given him deliverance from Apollyon, he soon sheathed that sword and made use of the weapon which Bunyan called all prayer, uh, which Bunyan called utilizing the Apostle Paul's own language in Ephesians 6. And, and that was a very difficult passage through there. Uh, it, it was a scary passage, to say the least, the things that he heard, the things that uh, he feared and all that. But he came out of there, and there was an introduction to some new characters as Bunyan came out of there. And the first character was the individual named Faithful, who becomes his companion. I would say his very close companion. I don't know how many days time-wise it takes for them to travel to Vanity Fair, but he becomes his dear, dear friend. And there were some other individuals that Faithful talked about that he met in his journey so far, like Wanton and like Adam the First and others. But just before we get to Vanity Fair today, as I said last time, and we'll see it now this time, there are two leftover things that we have to look at. Two leftover things. And before we get to this, and I'll show you what goes on the balances, these two leftover things are two characters, one of whom we met before, virtually at the beginning of the story, and another individual that we are just introduced to at this point in the story, and there is really a lot to say about this individual. I reread it this morning, and I thought, holy cow, we could do a whole lesson on this guy. And that is talkative. Talkative. If you'll look at your notes right here in the leftovers, first thing, talkative. As they, and that's Christian, 
and faithful. As they went on their way, they met with a tall man who said that he was going to the same heavenly country as they were. He very quickly proves himself to be talkative. And that's funny, names him that. Several times over he talks about that. Being able to converse on many subjects, especially religion. I mean, without any context for this, when we hear him talking, wow, this guy's saying some good things. Certainly that's what faithful thought, because you see the first arrowhead under that is faithful, is initially impressed by him. And here's him at length. Christian had kind of moved himself a little bit away from the two of them as they talked, uh, faithful and talkative. And finally, Christian, in private conversation, informs faithful that he is from their town. He is the son of an individual called Saywell, living on Prating Row. Now, we're not familiar with that word, Prating, probably. Prating, to prate, is to chatter nonsense, and he was certainly an expert at that. He was a non-stop talker who mainly impressed himself, who could talk at length about religion, but who had not the life to back it up. I, I read this again myself this morning, and I thought, gee, I'm going, I'm going to read, I'm going to read a number of things that I've encountered in here that I think were noteworthy. That I think I'll just be caught up in reading a lot of things here. Um, a couple things that I notice in the text, and I have a lot of things underlined and, and arrows drawn to them and all. One of the things is, faithful says, well, I see that saying and doing are two things. And hereafter, I shall better observe this distinction, saying and doing. What we say, especially when we make a profession of faith, must be accompanied by what we do, which in some places in Scripture, is referred to as an adornment of our profession. An adornment of our profession. I find that several times in reading this section here, um, mention is made of the conduct of talkative in the alehouses. <laughs> he loved to spend time in the alehouses. I don't know what happened. I had a couple slides here that actually show him in the alehouses in some of these old books. Your religion and an alehouse and covetousness will stand together. You are a man whose religion stand, lies in talk and your life makes your profession a lie. Rather than being an adornment to his profession, it made his profession into a lie. Well, if you look further at the notes now, the fourth arrow head down, when faithful re-engaged talkative in conversation, he asked him, as Christian had advised him, if the power of religion was set up in his heart, house, and conversation. And several times, those three words, heart, house, and conversation. Now, the heart... Religion, not just from the head or the mouth, 
but religion that is deeply seated in the heart. The house is home. Are we at home what we profess ourselves to be? And conversation. Well, conversation, of course, is our talk, but conversation, that word is oftentimes used in a wider sense than just your talk. It's your manner of life, which includes a lot of separate parts, doesn't it? A lot of separate parts. It might include your job. It might include your amusements. A lot of things. Well, by and by, he realized that he was out of his depth with genuine spirituality, and he departed from them. Uh, If you haven't read that section of the conversation between faithful and talkative, you know, I would recommend you go back and spend a few minutes reading through that again and how Christian keyed faithful into what was really at work here where faithful had been convinced initially that this man is one of them. He's not. The second thing, and I'm going to open my book here to this because I want to read this very specifically. You find the term evangelist here. Evangelist. So, evangelist rejoins them. Christian sees him coming. Let me read you from evangelist's own words here. My sons, you've heard in the words of the truth of the gospel that you must through many tribulations enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again, that in every city, bonds and afflictions abide you. They are Paul's own words. And again, that in every city, bonds and afflictions abide in you. And therefore, you cannot expect that you should go long on your pilgrimage without them in some sort or other. Skipping a few lines, he says, For now, as you see, you are almost out of this wilderness, and therefore you will soon come into a town that you will by and by see before you, and in that town you will be hardly, that is sorely, beset with enemies who will strain hard, but they will kill you And be you sure that one or both of you must, and listen to these words now carefully. These words are crucial. One or both of you must seal the testimony which you hold with blood. You will seal your testimony with blood. contrast here. Merriment, they're going to come into a town that merriment is one of the words that could describe it, to be sure. But one or both of them are going to become martyrs. So if you will look at the point number one, a preliminary look at the word, note the stark contrast between merriment and martyrs. The one living all of life for that which is nothing. The other, laying down one's life for treasure beyond compare. 
There is a family of words. I don't know whether we've encountered this family of words before in some of our studies. It's very possible that we have. Greek words, martoreo, a verb form. Martoria, a noun. Martorion, a noun also. Martorion actually was the name of the school newspaper when I was in college, very interestingly. Martus, which is the noun, a third declension noun for martyr, among other things. A family of words, the word martyr, refers to someone who has sealed his testimony with his life's blood. He has made the ultimate sacrifice for the truth, for standing for the truth of what he believes. Now, of course, there are martyrs to more causes than just Christianity. You know that. There were martyrs that took down the Twin Towers. They thought their reward would be immediate, you know, in the afterlife and all that. But when we think of the term martyr, we should remember the fact that for a Christian to seal his testimony with his life's blood is the ultimate opportunity to be a witness. Ah, Fox's Book of Martyrs. And remember way back in our first session together how we looked at sort of a thumbnail sketch of Bunyan. And we said, and he was in prison, you remember. You remember that he had his Bible, of course, but he had Fox's Book of Martyrs, too. Fox's Book of Martyrs. One of my professors, Dr. Alan A. McCray, beloved professor, said it. Two of the greatest books ever written and most cherished, certainly back in those days, were Pilgrim's Progress and Fox's Book of Martyrs. And virtually every Christian home had them. Well, <clears throat> here we go. I've had my Bible open up front here ever since we came into class, and my Bible is open to Ecclesiastes. It is. And I think a very appropriate place for us to make a couple observations before we actually enter into Vanity Fair with Christian and faithful. A brief look at Ecclesiastes. The book of Ecclesiastes has been referred to as Solomon's penitential discourse, composed a little before his death. Don't misunderstand that. Doesn't have anything to do with a penitentiary as we normally think of it, a jail or whatever. But it is Solomon's book of repentance is what we're talking about here. In it, he recants and laments the follies of his apostasy from God and of his attempting to satisfy himself with anything sensual or sinful. His fall, his fall, let me get the next words up here. His fall was an alarming proof of the weakness and corruption of human nature. His recovery, an encouraging instance of the infinite power, mercy, and grace of God. And I'll tell you what, for which every one of us in this room, without exception, can be thankful. Every one of us. His fall is alarming proof of the weakness and corruption of human nature. Do we understand that? We live with it, don't we? His recovery and encouraging instance of the infinite power, mercy, and grace of God. 
We could not live a day without the grace of God. We could not. Well, a summary of the history of Solomon. And I don't know how our time is going here, but three points here. And there are scripture references for all of these. And because they are not necessarily long references, except for the third one, (laughs) I think we can read these. So let's flip back to 1 Kings, 1 Kings, and chapter 10, 1 Kings chapter 10, and verses 23 and 24. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And the whole earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his mind. Every one of them, it says in verse 25, every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and gold, garments, myrrh, spices, horses and mules, so much year after year. This is Solomon at his high point, to be sure, in the prime of life. And that's in chapter 10. You don't have to read too much further to get to chapter 11, and we read now. King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, and from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love, He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And his his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord, as David his father had done. And we could read on further and, 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 and just stand amazed at the depth of his fall. Solomon's apostasy from God. Remember, apostasy is a falling away. Apostasy is a falling away. And then point number three, and I don't have time to read the whole reference here, it is Ecclesiastes. So, and I lost my place. My Bible was open to Ecclesiastes the whole time before, and I meant to keep my finger there, but I didn't. So coming back to Ecclesiastes. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, (coughs) vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes But the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down. 
and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. And on its currents, the wind returns. And so on and so forth. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity, except the preacher. Notice the little paragraph now. The statement which we read in Ecclesiastes 1-2, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, echoes again and again throughout the book until we come to its last occurrence in chapter 12, verse 8. The words vanity, vain, vexation occur more than 30 times in the book. The word tebel, the Hebrew word, means breath, meaninglessness, emptiness, futility. I heard, and it could very possibly be, that Libby was sitting in the room with me, and Dave was sitting in the room with me when I heard this. I heard it once suggested that a good contemporary way of representing what the word vanity conveys is by using the idea of soap bubbles. Soap bubbles. Vanity. Soap bubbles. If only these were real bubbles, I could pop that bubble and it's gone. And so for every one of them, once in a while, and my, one of my jobs at home is to do the dishes after dinner, and when I shoot the, the dishwashing liquid in there, sometimes little bubbles come out. And I love to watch those and blow them around and everything, but they don't last forever. They don't. They are just little circles of nothingness, really. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher. When the reader of the Pilgrim's Progress comes to the section on Vanity Fair, which we're going to do right now, if he has any knowledge of Scripture, he will certainly think of the book of Ecclesiastes. So, let's go. Evangelist told Christian and faithful that they would soon come into a town where they would be sorely beset by enemies and that one or both of them would seal their testimony with their blood. He, he first of all commended them for the way they had conducted themselves up to this point, but then says, you're going to come into a town and one or both of you are going to become a martyr. Be faithful unto death. Be faithful unto death. Well, persons and places along the way, well, the first place is Vanity Fair. And I chose for this slide and for the next slide we're going to see a couple pictures of Vanity Fair, which I found in all my searches. And the pictures that I chose, I chose very, very intentionally. These pictures are, to use one term to describe them, these pictures are busy. <laughs> They're busy. Every inch of space is utilized in trying to convey what... Vanity Fair was all about. And I'm telling you what, if you could see these pictures, now probably the closer you see, the better, the closer you see, the better you can see it. But if you had time to just look at these pictures and try to examine every part, it would be fascinating what you see. 
Where, where is, where is Pilgrim and Faithful in this picture? Do you know? Yeah. Here's a guy in armor right here. That's Christian in armor, and this is Faithful right here. In this picture, they're in the forefront. I kind of love this because it looks like Christian is wearing a kilt. I mean, wow, I like that. <laughs> I don't know. Probably my imagination. But all the rest of the picture is filled with stuff. Let's make a couple observations here. This is no new town or fair. You know, perhaps you've driven through cities or maybe even had places near where you grew up or lived where periodically during the year, a fair would pop up. You know how sometimes you're driving down the road and you see a fair popped up there and you can see the Ferris wheel and other things? Well, this is no new town or fair. This town has a history, <coughs> as Bunyan puts it, a history of almost 5,000 years. Now, what would the 5,000 years be? Well, we turn our clock back a few hundred years to get the Bunyan's time. And essentially, what he is saying here, this town has a history that goes back to the beginning of history. Its foundations are diabolical. Diabolical. Not innocent, but diabolical. The enemy of our souls has a hand in it, to be sure. Crowds, cacophony, crime, dot, dot, dot. You can see crowds in this picture. If only we could turn up the sound on that picture, we would hear all <coughs> kinds of sounds, all blended together. Crime, yeah. Here's another picture, a different picture. You see Christian and Pilgrim in this one? Well, again, they're in the forefront here. Here's a guy in armor. There's a guy who has his fingers in his ears trying to shut out the sound. And again, you see just a crowd of stuff. It's a place of cheap and tawdry people, things, and activities. The residents of the town and proprietors at the fair expect conformity to their values and lifestyle. Now, why do I have this picture here? Because Bunyan makes the point that the prince of princes himself went through this town to his own country. In, in this, I, I love this picture when I found it. Jesus has a figure behind him. Who is that figure? It's Satan, tempting the Lord Jesus that we read about in Matthew 4 and Luke 4 in detail. And in one of those temptations, Satan said, you see all the kingdoms of the world here? They're yours if you'll bow down and worship me. Beelzebub, the chief lord of this fair, invited him to buy of his vanities. How, how insightful of Bunyan to write this. The Lord Jesus himself is not unfamiliar with the things 
that we experience, the things that are related to Vanity Fair. The hubbub. I don't know whether you're reading a modern translation or whatever, but I love the word hubbub. I love the word hubbub in here as it describes this. The hubbub. Why is there such a hubbub with regard to Christian and faithful? There are four things that are listed here. Four things. Number one, the dress of the pilgrims was different. Their attire was different. Second thing is, their speech was different also. Uh, Bunyan specifically describes it as the speech or the language of Canaan. Third, they cared not for the wares. And believe me, the people of Vanity Fair were working really, really hard to sell their wares to these men who were passing through their city. Really, really hard. But they cared not for their wares. They cared not for what was being peddled around them. And their bold declaration was, that is, of Christian and faithful, we buy the truth. We buy the truth. These four things are very, very significant as to putting our finger on why, again, here's a guy in armor right here, with his hand up in the air, uh, why they are being assaulted by the people of Vanity Fair. Now, you see where we are in our notes right here? You can see the listing of one, two, three, four. So we've almost come to the bottom of the page. <clears throat> Thereupon, the pilgrims were mocked, beaten, smeared with dirt, and put in a cage. Although they were made sport of, they did not answer in kind, but rather behaved themselves wisely and soberly. They were beaten further. Chains hanged on, upon them and paraded them up and down in the fair, put them in a cage again, and this time with their feet in stocks. They were subjected to a lot of things here. Mockery, beating, smearing them with dirt, put in a cage, made sport of, chains put on them, paraded in the town, their feet put in stocks, and yet they behave themselves wisely and soberly. You know how easy it is when we are mistreated to fire back, to fire back, maybe to find stronger words than they used at us. Yeah, but they behave themselves wisely and soberly. They comforted one another, Christian and faithful, and secretly wished, what did they secretly wish? Secretly wished what? 
secretly wished, look at the bottom, almost the end of the page, secretly wished that he might be treated worse. Christian secretly wished that he might be treated worse than faithful. And faithful was secretly wishing the same thing, that he might be treated worse. Right? Out of their love for one another. <clears throat> well, <clears throat> The trial, the trial. There is so much related to the trial that Christian and faithful are put on, the trial that they endure. There's so much on that that I have chosen to not go into the trial and try to cover it in 10 minutes. There is so much here. Everything from the name of the judge to the name of the jury, a rogues gallery of individuals, to the very specific things that took place in the trial. So God willing, next week, we are going to be looking at that. But I am not done. You don't think I'm done, do you? No. The Christian and the world. Let's just think about that for a few minutes. And let me just take this off the screen, lest it be a distraction to you. The Christian in the world. What was Jesus warning about the world? What did Jesus say about the world? <clears throat> well, let's flip over to the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John. <clears throat> Now, one thing I want to point out here, as we're flipping to the Gospel of John, is that a unique feature of the Gospel of John is that, essentially, chapters 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18 all took place during a very small window of time. All those chapters. All those chapters are happening from... The time that the Lord Jesus partook of the Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room, and they left that room heading toward Gethsemane. And certainly when it comes to Easter time, I think it is so significant to read all those chapters as one block of text. But look at John chapter 13. <clears throat> John chapter 13. Excuse me. John chapter 15 is what I mean. John chapter 15. <clears throat> Verse 28. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf. For the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world. And now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. His disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things. And do not need anyone to question you. I'm reading from chapter 16, aren't I? I 
Come on, somebody help me here. Back up, back up to chapter 15 is what I'm after. <clears throat> Verse 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Um, in my text, I'm, I'm reading a text where these words are in red. They're not more inspired than the black letter words, but these are Jesus' words. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, <clears throat> they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Well, if they hate you, know that they hated me before they hated you. We could skip over into chapter 17. The high priestly prayer. <coughs> the high priestly <coughs> <coughs> In the course of the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 11, Jesus again speaking. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Jesus' warning about this world. Um, <clears throat> listen to this simple phrase here. The world is both hostile and enticing. True or false? Absolutely true. Hostile and enticing. Another statement. We are misfits maligned by a mocking world. Another statement. The exclusivity of Christ has rugged consequences. You know, I can tell you who that quote is from. That quote is from Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria Butterfield. Uh, our time is fast disappearing this morning, but I have a book, and I don't think I picked up the book this morning, but a couple years ago, when we were on our way to the camp up in North Carolina, we traditionally stopped overnight in Savannah on our way up there, and traditionally for the last couple years, we would <clears throat> get up early Sunday morning and attend the Independent Presbyterian Church in Savannah, right on the historical square of 
historical church with long roots, but a great Bible-preaching church, believe it or not. And the pastor, Terry Johnson, I've come to know him a little bit. But before church started, we are looking at a small book rack in the lobby. And I saw a little paperback book by him and bought that book because the title of it indicated just exactly the things I was studying for for a camp that I would go to later on that summer at Camp Gilead in, in uh, Polk City. And I bought that book and I found in reading that book, and that's where the quote comes from uh, in Rosaria Butterfield. Um, I loved the book so much and it gave so many helpful suggestions to me for the things that I was building for going to Camp Gilead that I wrote a letter to Terry Johnson later on and said, I just want to thank you for the providence of God and that book being in the library and how much I enjoyed that book and all. One more quote. If we mean, listen to this carefully now, if we mean not to be burned, let us not walk upon the coals of temptation. If we mean not to be burned, let us not walk on the coals of temptation. Well, let, let's just pause, and, and our time is all but exhausted here, and think back. Talkative. Talkative. Have you known anybody like talkative? That could certainly say a lot, uh, even about spiritual things, but at the same time, probably never attended church, probably in certain contexts, didn't behave at all as a Christian would behave, but nevertheless could talk a good game. Is talk, is religious talk going to get us into heaven? No. Is naked profession going to get us into heaven? No. No. Is profession important? I think it is. I think it is. But it must be profession that is backed up by a life that is lived in a way that it verifies what we're saying. <clears throat> and in reading this again this morning myself, I, I just had to say, Lord, search my heart. Search my heart and know me. Uh, I, don't, I don't ever want to be a hypocrite. <clears throat> Uh, I don't and I, and I pray that you don't either. a martyr what do you think the chances are that any of us will seal our testimony with our life's blood you know we don't know the answer to that the likelihood is that the chances are small at least it seems so Although there are things that happen, especially as you know, the days unfold here, when uh, Christians are coming more and more under the gun, <clears throat> especially in the face of Islam, but not just Islam. It's like the lifestyle, like what the society is accepting that yeah. was 
unacceptable. Yeah, yeah. It, uh, society, we're kids. Vanity Fair is so hostile in every way. Yeah, you know, read again. <clears throat> I don't know where your reading has taken you to this point, but read again the description. I, I just put some few words on the screen to describe Vanity Fair. But when you read all the details of it, it's so pervasive, so pervasive. And Vanity Fair is out there. It is out there. We live, we live in Vanity Fair. We do. Now, have you ever heard the expression, if you were put on trial for being a Christian, What's the rest of it? Would there be enough evidence? Yes. Yeah. Would there be enough evidence to convict you? You know, that's an interesting expression. I love the expression. I've used it many times. I think at camps and all that. But how is this trial going to proceed? Read again. You'll have to read a few pages. There are biblical examples. That's probably where we're going to look for our introduction in these things. But there are biblical examples of things that are called to substantiate the testimony of the two men. Who knows? Both of them may be martyred. You know the story well enough that both of them aren't martyred. <clears throat> We're going to look at the trial next week. Anybody have any, <clears throat> anybody have any, any words that you would like to say at the end, David? I don't know if it's the same chapel message as the bubble. But uh, I did find that very instructive that day as pastors that our life's like a bubble. And it reminded me of when Steve was mentioning the same principle. And he said our life is like a, he did this, he said, like a vapor. And um, the other thing is that uh, when you hubbub, um, I remember one of the pastors in chapel saying, if the devil can't get you to sin, he'll get you too busy. I thought that's a practical principle I need to remember. It's not coincidental how often my phone works me, and I need to ignore it. Yep. Anyone else? Okay, let's pray. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you for your love for us. Thank you, Father, that we are safe in your hands. I still remember what I wrote for Z on my alphabet of thanksgiving. Zero chance that I will ever lose my salvation. And Lord, that is because we are safe in your hand. Certainly, the devil would love to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you, Father, for your great love for us. Thank you for your protection over us. Thank you that even though we are in this world, Lord, we can live for you in this world. We can shine for you. And I pray that you will bless us, Lord, in times past. Various of us have brought up prayer requests for our neighbors that we are witnessing to and others that we have met. We pray, Father, that you would help us to persist in our witness, to persist in our prayers. And, Father, that we might see them come to embrace the truth as it is revealed in Scripture. Lord, we love you. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.